Hey folks, it's finally time for Formula 1 to return to Singapore. And it's been so long. It's literally been three years, but it feels like ages. It's a circuit where we've seen so many great moments, so many great memories. And finally, F1 is back home to the original night race. And to discuss this race and the stories behind it, actually, how were the lights in the first place formed out properly? We've got Steve Slater, the voice of Formula 1 in Asia, who's also been a great part of our F1 race watch-alongs on BTM Insider that you should also check out. And we're also going to have one for Singapore GP as well. So don't forget to register for that by clicking the link on the description. But I should actually dive in immediately to the circuit because Singapore, uh, it, when we initially think about it, there are so many great memories. I mean, from the very beginning, we saw the circuit deliver an absolute classic, a controversial classic, yes. But th- there's been great, great stories from every single race. But I suppose, Steve, there's one story before the first race that's really been very intriguing. You mentioned something in our pre-race recording, or pre-episode recording, or the meeting you recorded that way. I'm just so flustered by the story, I can't even get my words (laughs) correct. But it was something about the lighting of Singapore. And I remember as a child, right, I was around five years old, I remember reading in all the articles that the drivers faced no problems whatsoever with the lightings at Singapore. I was... Intrigued? How is that possible? It's a night race. Formula One has never done a night race. But what's the story behind it? How did it never happen? Uh, The problem, that is. Well, it it really is a case. It was a step into the unknown, despite everything that was done. I was involved with Singapore Grand Prix from 2007. um, And the lighting is a key part of what was, was done. We even had to convince Formula One journalists. I was actually helping establish the the press operation at that time and we actually flew out a large number of journalists to actually show them how the lighting would work and how the track would work uh, because they were really quite worried what happens if all the lights go out halfway through a race well actually it couldn't happen because the way it's all wired is that uh, there are probably 3,000 lighting rigs around the circuit projector lighting which is a little bit like the LED headlamps on a uh, high uh, high value car and they're all for every single lighting unit is focused into a different bit of the track and all the lighting units of course are below the tree line so you don't get these big stadium floodlights like you get in some of the other circuits now these are lights that are much closer to the track typically around about um, uh, four to eight meters above the track and they shine uh, into the track they're designed so they don't dazzle the drivers but also one of the interesting things is they give a light and shadow to one side of the car and that gives the driver an orientation he knows which way he's going around the racetrack which sounds stupid but if you spin out of the racetrack and you had just flat white lighting there's a real danger a driver could set off going the wrong way and it, it was very carefully thought out there was a brilliant italian engineer valereo maioli who uh, who did all that work and of course he's also the man who invented the um led light flags that you now see around all the formula one circuit wow we i i'm so amazed to hear about the tree part and now, now that you know about it it sounds like common sense right that, that you would put your lightings below that but just to think about how they initially did it, it it's amazing but just how many years did it take for the whole plan and the entire lighting to all come about because you're saying 2007 surely it must be even further than that, when the plans must have actually been made, right? Because this was back in 2008, something that had never, ever been done ever before in Formula 1. Well, it was actually at the very beginning of the 2000s that um, uh, the Singapore Grand Prix team was actually first established. And initially, they were looking at actually building a purpose-made racetrack out by the Changi Airport. 
and that uh, didn't uh, prove successful. And then the discussions, I, I certainly became part of the discussions in about late 2006, um, when the track design was pretty well uh, already uh, finalised, and uh, they were then negotiating with not to mention, you know, amongst other things, a couple of thousand uh, shopkeepers who have to close their business for four days. And they were making the case to government. Um, and it was it's, it has been a, a really carefully thought through race concept from beginning to end. Uh, it's, it has one of the most successful Formula One paddock clubs, for example, which is uh, bringing in high net worth people from all the way around uh, the Pacific Rim. And of course, from further afield from the USA and, and from Europe. So it's it, it's a showcase for Singapore as much as it is anything else, and yeah, that all really starts started around about two thousand and six, and then had the first race in twenty oh eight. And when we were preparing for this episode, you also mentioned your involvement in designing a couple of corners on the circuit. Now, <laughs> or what, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> or not? <laughs> of course, I, I only at least looked at the suggestions, but just what was the original layout supposed to be like? And uh, do you think they've gone for the best one possible? They went for the best possible with minimising the impact on the main city. It would have been wonderful to have run race cars down Orchard Road, the main shopping street in Singapore, with all the big shopping malls either side. But can you imagine the disruption that would have on the businesses? Because when the tourists arrive here for the Formula One Grand Prix, and 40% of the um, the tickets are sold to overseas visitors, um, they want, they also want to go shopping. So you can't really blank out the main shopping area. Likewise, there was some temptation to try and run down past Chinatown and uh, and some of the and Little India and some of the other areas, which are more tourism hotspots. But again, you'd have disrupted the whole business quarter, and you can't really ask uh, twenty international banks to close their skyscraper offices. So they form the backdrop to the Grand Prix, which basically runs around the the big sport and recreation ground in the centre of Singapore, the Padang, and then into the Marina Bay area past the theatre. And, and and around the bay the bay area itself um and then running back up raffles boulevard which has a number of um shopping malls which actually stay open even when the grand prix is in place it's slightly weird walking through a shopping mall with the muzak going do de do de do de do the sliding doors open at the end and there's a sound of a formula one go- car going past and then the sliding doors shut again <laughs> uh, only only in singapore do you get that experience <laughs> Who would even want to shop during that time? But but I remember something similar happening in Hong Kong as well because there's a there's an Apple store at the Hong Kong Metro Station that's uh, just behind one of the corners of the Hong Kong Formula E circuit, and there were actually people buying their phones when the race was on. I mean, not that you could hear the cars inside the store as much yeah. as the Formula One cars, but still quite quite something. But there's more stories, folks, coming up as a part of this episode. But we'll do that after a short message. Stay right here. Hey folks, welcome back into the Inside Line F1 podcast. And you heard it correctly. You can be a part of our live race watch along for the Singapore GP with Steve Slater as well. And with the kind of stories we've got over there, with the kind of race analysis that we've got as a part of the race watch along, I'm sure you'd like to join in. So you can check that out by clicking on the link in the description for free, actually. We've now got the watch alongs open for everyone. So join in, send in your questions. It should be a fun one. But I actually am very, very curious about the entire permissions element of it because let's be honest right this uh, apart from monaco this has to be probably one of the biggest events that formula one has ever done kind of like the las vegas of the past if, if that kind of puts it into context for some of the new listeners joining in just how big of a logistical nightmare was it and and still continues to be this to this day 
it, it is a massive logistical challenge for the organisers, and uh, they they have this very limited setup period um, and multi point breakdown period on the Sunday night. They have been working probably for the past week or so setting up. There's a lot of work being going on setting up, which actually doesn't disrupt the traffic particularly. Some car park entrances get blocked off and things like that. But the real work starts on the Tuesday uh, before the Grand Prix. And the lighting rigs will have already started to go up and you get lane closures on the roads and things like that. This is a city centre road. I mean, Raffles Boulevard is normally five lanes of traffic with everything from buses and trucks through to mopeds. Um, it, it, it really is a, a, an amazing activity and it works. They work through the day and through the night, putting the barriers in, putting the lighting rigs up, putting all the other support facilities up. The only permanent bit of racetrack in Singapore Grand Prix and Marina Bay circuit is the start finish straight. And that's actually for 51 weeks of the year used for storage and also used for other events such as bicycle marathons and things like that. So it really is uh, an amazing job. And at the end of the Grand Prix, they literally, as the drivers are on the podium, they'll have started to take down some of the barriers and some of the uh, lighting catenaries and things like that. And by six o'clock the next morning, normal traffic will have started to resume on all the roads that make up the circuit. Are you kidding me? Now, six the only o'clock? Bit, yeah, the only bit that has a delay is the area around the Padang area in front of the National Museum of Singapore. And the only reason that's delayed is because there's a live music concert until 2 a.m. Yep, <laughs> yep. And they've always got the biggest bands over there. That, that makes it extra special. But 6 a.m., I, I still can't, can't quite believe it myself because I, I know motorsport teams are quick at completely packing up this stuff. I mean, if you, if you just manage to stick around at the end of any weekend, beat even the local club championship if the races are done by five, by, by what, around seven? Mostly everyone's packed up yeah. and ready to go. It's it's remarkable. But among many other things, right? this is just one of the things that makes Singapore so special. But the lights, yes, they make up for one thing. But just what really makes up the heart of Singapore Grand Prix? I mean, just what's, what makes it so special for you? More, more than anything else, the people. Um, it's the only Grand Prix circuit where you can take the metro to your grandstand seat. Uh, and the Metro is brilliant. I, I mean, we decided uh, a few years ago when we were doing live coverage with Star Sports that actually the easiest way to get to the paddock wasn't to try and take a car or certainly wasn't to take a taxi. It was actually take the Metro to Marina Bay Station and then walk <laughs> walk in from there. And you just get to meet everybody. You've got the race fans, the marshals. We're all going in at the same time. And then, you know, we all dive off into little bits of the paddock and various pieces. But it really is just a fantastic community. And it's also a great one because you get all the journalists from Australia that you don't get to meet normally. Then you get all the journalists from Europe are coming in, a few journalists from the USA as well, and and also the, the journalists from across Asia. And again, the, the F1 press room is almost like a reunion. It, it's, it's great. And it, it's got great hospitality there as well. Everybody eats and drinks within the, uh, the press hospitality area. That works really well. Then you've got the, um, the hospitality, which is some of the most epic hospitality anywhere in the world, looking straight down on the pit lane from the first and second floor um, hospitality suites. And they, they have something like 3,000 hospitality guests each, for each of the three days. In a typical average ticket price, is probably about $1,500. So that's a big money earner. And they get a great service. So you've got the top chefs in the world actually have uh, served those VIP guests. And of course, the top chefs come because they want to come to the Grand Prix. Is that basically the definition of heaven? I mean, could, could you ask for more? 
Mm-hmm. It gets it just gets better and better every year, every year. And, and, and I know very well that the Grand Prix team. I'm not involved in it actually for the first time this this year because obviously with the natural break, they they reformatted some of the areas. And I, I for the last six or seven years had worked as the Formula One one of the Formula One paddock club hosts, and uh, you know interviewing drivers and various things like that. So I'll be sitting on the sofa. Well, I won't because I'm going to do the watch along. I was going to say I'll be otherwise sitting on the sofa with a beer in my hand watching it, but. Uh, uh, we'll be doing the watch along, so uh, that's going to be just as much fun. Actually, which makes me want to ask you: just what was your involvement like through all the years of the Singapore Grand Prix? Uh, I've I've heard that it's more on the PR side, but can you just give us a detailed insight into what it actually was, and just how how detailed was it, just to get all the journalists on and manage everything? Because as you rightly mentioned, Singapore kind of becomes a hotspot for most people, right? Most Asian journalists. Yeah, well, the the Singapore Grand Prix have a very good media team. Uh, that actually run the the press office and all the press operations. It's all very slickly coordinated, as you imagine. Um, and I was also working with Star Sports TV, so we would have do the live TV from from the track and from the paddock. Um, and I did that for from well, two thousand and eight to two thousand and thirteen races. Um, after that, I was working with Singapore Grand Prix in the Formula One paddock club. So I've been around a, a lot of it. I mean, I have to say for me, having been involved in some of the logistics and the planning and the setting up of the press office and various other things like that in the early days, the biggest one of the biggest buzzes I had is the one thing that you wouldn't have normally seen, which was on the Friday evening practice session, the very first practice session, the first F1 car out on the racetrack, uh, Giancarlo Fisichella in the Force India. Uh, it's the only time ever I think I've ever jumped up and down with excitement watching a Force India. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Can't, can't, can't be that wrong, isn't it, Gunal? Well, can't be that wrong, but it's so interesting to hear everything that went in the background to make the Singapore Grand Prix happen. And after, I would say, Silverstone, which was the natural home race of, uh, of the Force India team because of the base just... Uh, Next to the circuit, we had the Indian Grand Prix, which was the real home race, right? But truth be told, after the Indian Grand Prix went away, the one race we activated the most in Asia was the Singapore Grand Prix. The one race where we had our own paddock club, which sold out all the tickets, was the Singapore Grand Prix. So I'm not surprised that, you know, Steve has a different view to the same thing, but with the same result that he expected as well. And I've got to say, I was so pleased for Force India that they got Giancarlo out first car on the track. So he was the first F1 car around the Marina Bay Street circuit because that really was a a very special moment for a lot of people. And a a lot of Indian uh, Grand Prix fans and also marshals and officials were working with the Singapore Grand Prix team. So that that, uh, was absolutely uh, uh, tremendous as well. I would say that the first Singapore Grand Prix with that Force India raced at, I was not at the team, but I, otherwise I could have corroborated the statement to say if this was done on purpose to get maximum visibility for the car and the team and the sponsors because, hey, everybody is literally waiting for the moment you just described, Steve. Oh, it was. And, you know, and, and it was also he, he got out quite a little bit ahead of some of the other cars. Uh, and he was the sole car visible on the track going up for a Raffles Boulevard up to turn 13, for example. So it really was, uh, you know, it was a special sight and a great sound. Um, and it was quite interesting, actually, um, 
the you know the rest of the pack then headed out onto track and of course we now know that was a, there was a bit of controversy in the race itself but it really it was it was a dramatic race uh, from the very beginning actually uh, I actually I really want to touch upon that subject as well I mean I know it's it's not 100% relevant to what we're talking about but I suppose, judging from what you've said, you must be there at 2008 Singapore Grand Prix, right? At that race where we saw Crashgate took, uh, take place. And <laughs> for those of you who aren't quite aware, Nelson Piquet Jr. of Renault was ordered to crash his car at a strategic time to make sure that Fernando Alonso would get an advantage, his teammate that is, and so that he would end up winning from, I think it was P15 or 17, something of that sort. But it was a memorable win. I actually had posters of that race on my wall until a couple of years ago that got gifted uh, by, got gifted to me by someone from Renault. So that's pretty interesting. But when you were there, was there any sort of inclination or, or any feeling that you got that, okay, this might be potentially fixed? Because who knew that a year later it would just end up being one of the biggest scandals in F1 history? And, and I think it, it, it was a scandal. And certain people in Formula One rightly should hang their head in shame for actually trying to manipulate a race. I think the one man who was totally innocent in all of this was Fernando Alonso. I, I don't think he would have bought into it he, had he been aware of it. Um, they'd made an early pit stop for Alonso, and then um, the accident happened a, a few laps later. And there were a few raised eyebrows when Alonso made a very out-of-sequence pit stop. But nobody worked out or had worked out, and, and to be honest... It's only with the benefit of hindsight you can actually see what happened with that strategy there. And even then, you know, there was still a fighting chance that Felipe Massa would have come out of the pit lane um, close enough to Alonso to be able to challenge him in the latter part of the race. The only problem is he came out of the pit lane dragging his refueling hose because the Ferrari mechanics hadn't disconnected it before he set off. So I do have a great photograph in my archive of, of uh, Massa's mechanics trudging, trudging back up the pit lane with the refueling hose on their shoulder because of course he'd had to stop at the pit exit, otherwise he'd be penalised. Um, but yeah, having dragging the refu- trying to drag the refueling rig down the pit lane with him wasn't the greatest Ferrari pit stop. Even by modern standards. <laughs> well, they've, they've certainly set a standard back in the day, right? I mean, it starts from the 50s by just actually forgetting that you have to change tyres and not fight in the pit lane, as we've heard in so many of their old Le Mans stories as well. But that, <laughs> that was actually one of my first Formula 1 memories. Massa uh, not having the best pit stop, Raikkonen crashing out in that race as well. It, yeah. You've had so many Ferrari memories over there as well, right? 2010 also pops up to mind. But when speaking to you before this episode, I also understood that you have worked with Ferrari as a part of this race as well, sir. So what what was that whole experience all about? Well, not just during part of this race. I I was very lucky that um, uh, I established Kingpin Media or Kingpin Singapore uh, or Kingpin Asia, I beg your pardon, based in Singapore uh, from 2010. Uh, both working with Singapore Grand Prix and like any PR agency, you're out there bidding for other work as well, including international cricket and uh, the Ferrari franchise in Singapore. And we were actually the press officers or uh, PR people for Ferrari Singapore for things like the launch of the uh, Ferrari California and various other things. So again, what, what a privilege to be able to go and play with all the toys in the toy box, really. We wait. So, did you get to drive them on track as well? Potentially, not not on no? track, but I did drive some of the cars. We did some Ferrari drive outs to Sepang, for example, and various other things. Mm. Um, we also worked with Ferrari's press team to actually get, or the, their PR team, 
Um, the you know the fantastic Marina Bay. Um, uh, trying to think of the name of the uh, the complex, the the three towers linked with the roof garden, the Marina Bay oh, Sands. Marina Bay Sands. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now on the very end of that looks like the stern of the boat. Uh, there is a fantastic bar and balcony overlooking the circuit, and working with. Uh, uh, Ferrari's media team. We partly dismantled the Ferrari show car, got it into the freight lift, and got it up onto the thirty-sixth floor and onto that balcony, and then reassembled it. And the look of Felipe Massa's face when he walked into the bar and saw a Ferrari Formula One car on the thirty-first floor was something special. How? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, there must be so many moving parts, but. You take the suspension off, you take the nose and the tail off. The car doesn't have an engine in because it's just a show car. It's Correct. amazing where you can get them. It took a bit of fitting <laughs> in the lift. Wow, we uh, must be some experience there for all the guests as well, because that is yeah. the place to be, right? I mean, you can actually watch the race as it unfolds from that very place. What is the experience like being there? Because I mean, I I tell you, I've never us. been there on race day. I've been working somewhere else. <laughs> Wait, so where were you in the, on the race day? Just in the media box? We don't normally do a session in the paddock, in the media area. Um, and then because we were doing a studio show and everything else, uh, about an hour before the race, maybe an hour and a half before the race start, we'd jump on the, the, the MRT, the Metro, or we'd even hitch a ride on a motorbike or something like that and get out to uh, Lorong Tuan out in the uh, northeast of Singapore where the C- uh, Star Sports studios were and we'd do the rest from the studio. So, uh, no, I, I, it wasn't until about 2017 that I actually ever got to see a race... No, 2013 that I even got to see a race trackside. And before that, we were always locked in the uh, in the bunker in the studio. Oh, that, that, that kind of... <laughs> mm. If you're working for television, you've got to work where you work. That, that's true. That's true. I mean, it, it's just the way things are changing these days. And most people now don't even get to get that close to the circuit. So that's quite something. Well, I've been very, I've been very, very lucky to, uh, uh, to have been part of it and part of the paddock and part of everything else. And I'm sorry, did I say a hand in the air there? Just to add, you know, when you work at a when you work at a race, you got to work where you work at the race, and that's a very interesting thing you just said, Steve. Because you know, I I worked with Force India for you know over a hundred races and visited several of them, and people used to get shocked when I would say that, "Hey, I go to a race, but I watch the race on television," and they're like, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, because you know, you are working." while everyone is racing and literally the the two hours of the race is the time when you don't work but otherwise you're always just working so you know whenever even now when people are watching races or they attend races and they're in the paddock you go to one of the motorhomes or the media the media or the hospitality centers and you sit and watch the race on television because from the paddock Unless you're at a circuit like Spa or something where you can see Eau Rouge and Ray de Lyon and stuff, you don't always get to see uh, the racetrack. So that was something that a lot of people almost could never fathom when I used to explain it this way. But I'm glad you have the same story, Steve. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number of times, even when I've been trackside, I'm not looking out the window of the commentary box to see what's going on. I'm watching the TV coverage because my job is to actually interpret what 
everyone else is seeing on the screen. It's no good for me saying, hey, I'm looking out the window and I can see something you can't because that's going to make everybody really miserable. Um, I'm actually going to be trying to translate what is going on on that screen and trying to give somebody a bit of feedback onto what's happening, a bit like on our watch-alongs. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. But it must be quite something when you're watching the race from the TV and then as soon as it's done, maybe you just get out of your motorhome or your commentary box and then all of a sudden you get to feel the buzz. Just what's that feeling all like? Because suddenly, of course, when you're watching on a screen, it's like you're part of a different bubble. But the moment you get out there, is it too much of a sensory overload? Because Singapore, all the lights, all the people, the sound of the cars, it's obviously one of the I think more compact paddocks that we have in the Formula One uh, uh, calendar as well. So obviously it makes it a bit trickier for everyone. So just that whole experience might be uh, quite something, I suppose. I can't quite find the right word for it. It is. And don't forget, it's quite warm and quite humid as well. So we're talking a 30 degree plus temperature usually, even late into the evening. So it, 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 it that creates that ambience. The, the sun setting at about 6.30 to 7 o'clock in the evening as everything is getting ready for the race start and the track gets darker and darker, the track lights become more focused. Uh, it does create a really special atmosphere. There's no two way about it. And the you know tracks um, like Abu Dhabi, their floodlighting is like stadium lighting in a soccer stadium. It, it, it's tens of meters high, these huge white burning lights. And Singapore's lighting is more intimate because it's lower, it's closer to the track, it gives that shadow. And it really is, I think, um, just a special atmosphere that no other circuit has actually been able to reproduce. Speaking of the atmosphere at Singapore, I've also noticed many drivers actually going for ice baths in a dustbin after the race. Have, have, have you seen that happen after the end of the race? <laughs> <I haven't>. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, one of the interesting things is, particularly when you're working as a journalist, when the drivers all start chilling out and uh, you know they've got had their debriefs and then they're sitting in dustbins of ice or whatever, um, that is when the journalists start work because they've got their deadlines to do and writing their reports or filing their reports on online. And, uh, you know, the, uh, most of the journalists don't actually get out of the press room until after about two o'clock in the morning. So that's when the work starts for those guys. And it, it must go on until late in night, right? Because I read in one of the really fun Formula, books that I've, Formula One books that I've read, it's called The Mechanic by uh, Mark Priestley, that whenever they went to the Singapore Grand Prix, they used to party. I mean, they used to finish work by around, what, 12 or 1 o'clock in the night? And then all the mechanics and drivers actually went out to party. So for all the journalists who are quite often the last people to leave, that, that must be a, a very, very, very long day. You, 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 some drivers and some of the team, well, most of the teams will try and stay on Western European time. So they won't even get out of bed until, say, 11 or 12 o'clock Singapore time, get to the track three or four o'clock it's like they then have their breakfast at about four o'clock in the afternoon and they operate on the western time and then yes as you say they for them um three o'clock in the morning is the same as six o'clock in the evening in european time so it, it that that is the the slightly bizarre and surreal way they work uh, i've never really done that i've sort of gone half and half with this a little bit have a line in the morning but yeah certainly uh eating supper at 4 a.m is is not entirely unusual and I'm, I'm actually going to add add more to this because you know at force india we had an interesting situation like you explained steve you either take the metro to the race or you walk and we were in one of the hotels on uh one of the roads uh right next to the circuit and uh 
it so happened that the hotel had planned repairs, right? And like any hotel would need repairs. And they had planned to start the repairs at 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning, right? And I remember the team actually started complaining because, hey, that was the time to sleep. That was midnight in Central European time, which was what the race was basically modeled on. And the reason why Singapore is a night race is so it starts uh, at a regular time uh, in Europe, which is, you know, which is primarily the, the, the base of fans, at least before Drive to Survive happened, right? And I remember Andy Stevenson, the sporting director now of Aston Martin, who, uh, you know, as the team manager would be responsible for looking after the team, was furious because he said, you know, you guys have been hosting the team for so many years. You all know exactly when the team would wake up and sort of have breakfast and so on. How is it that you all can undertake repairs during the week of the Singapore Grand Prix? And I believe we actually ended up shifting a large part of the staff to another hotel just so that they wouldn't be disturbed during their night sleep. And talking of time zones, Steve, you said you did half. I was actually living on three time zones. It was Singapore time zone because, you know, we have, uh, you know, we used to do a lot of activation. The Force India Shoka would be at Orchard Road and worked very closely with the organizers and, uh, you know, the marketing department of the government who was actually activating this race, right? So I was living, living on Singapore time zone. I was living on Indian standard time because the marketing offices were based in India. And then, of course, the factory was based in the UK, right? So it, we were literally all over the place. But that, that just sort of was an added challenge of the, the Singapore Grand Prix. Uh, it, it is. Uh, <coughs> it truly is. It's an amazing circuit. It's a, it, it it posed challenges that no one had ever had come across in Formula One before. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, every year it seems to be worth it. Uh, is the Singapore Grand Prix the most challenging, demanding, scary racetrack on Formula One calendar? It's the busiest. Um, it's not a Spa. It's not a Monza. But uh, it has a lot of 90 degree corners because actually when you build a racetrack in the city, you really have to because they, they get a bit upset if you start knocking down hotels and museums and churches and things. Um, so it does have to fit the street profile of the uh, of, of the um, of the city. And it truly is a city centre track. I mean, I've, I've actually stayed in hotels that are literally um, 150 metres away from from the uh, from the circuit. And uh, it, it is quite a, a bizarre thing to come out and find that there's a, um, a debris fence in front in front of your hotel entrance. <laughs> yeah, but as, as, as crazy as it may sound to say, guys, I've got a Grand Prix that I can see literally from my window. It does have its pros and cons. But in terms of memories from that circuit, you, you've obviously shared great times with the Ferrari team working on their PR. You've obviously spoken about the time where you helped out, I mean, not helped out, but yes, helped out in the media organization, but also your insights on on the logistical element of Singapore. But just what stands out as one great memory that you carry from the circuit, be it on track or off? Because in a way, I, I can imagine Singapore creating tons of both of them. Um, there's, there's a couple, oh, going back to 2010, I'm thinking, um, the genuine emotion of Fernando Alonso when he celebrated the victory for Ferrari there, um, his second win, and, of course, the first one had been so much tainted. He'd felt so proud of having won the Singapore Grand Prix. And almost it was snatched away, the 2008 victory, 
although it stands on the record books, because it was then said, oh, well, the Renault team had cheated. Um, he really, that really did actually hurt Fernando and his genuine passion on the uh, on the podium, having won it properly and vindicated himself in his own eyes. Uh, that was pretty special. <laughs> of course, just before that, about 20 minutes before that, uh, right as the race finished, we had Heki Kovalainen in a Lotus arrive with the car on fire on the on just just on the outside of where the uh, the flag marshals were um, and and actually snatched a fire extinguisher off for a marshal who was sort of standing there with his mouth open to it and put the fire out himself so that that has to be one of the uh, the most interesting f1 f- um, checkered flag moments ever and he was high school just like all the fins always are right and, and and that was the year i remember when the lotus f1 team not Lotus Renault, let's not get confused, but the yeah, Lotus, yeah. the green Lotus F1 team actually had an Angry Birds logo with Heki Kohlainen on the helmet. So, a uh, uh, seven-year-old me was actually going bonkers. But what, a, <laughs> what a crazy race. This has to now oh, to yeah. be all the way through. It is. And also thinking back to 2016, um, which was uh, when Nico Rosberg uh, arrives and it was going to be his 200th Grand Prix start. And Nico is a, another guy who wears his heart somewhat on his sleeve. And his, because uh, he had a fantastic battle with Lewis Hamilton, um, he um, also then had to hold off Daniel Ricciardo, who was the fastest man actually on the track in the Red Bull. And that was very much a Mercedes strategy race. They got the strategy absolutely right and gave um, uh, Nico uh, his win on his 200th Grand Prix. That was that was a pretty special moment. And, you know, I'm going to add my special moment out here. Just... Like I said, you know, it was a home away from home, but another home in in Asia. And uh, the Singapore Grand Prix was special because I believe this was the first time that Force India actually scored the fastest lap in a race point with Adrian Suttle. And I remember we were all, like I said, in the hospitality watching the race on TV. Vijay Malia was uh, on the pit wall. He walks in and he's, of course, you know, extremely excited because uh, we got the fastest uh, lap of the race. It was one of those races where I can say this now, but, you know, there are times when midfield teams don't know what's the right thing to do. So they split strategies, right? And Adrian was running as high as fourth. We split strategies. Unfortunately, he got the wrong one, but he still got the fastest lap of the race. And he walks in and he's like, is this the first fastest lap of the race we've scored? And we were all puzzled saying, Oh my God, nobody knew this because, you know, we had never (laughs) scored it before. But I believe then it turned out that it was actually the second uh, fastest lap of the race because, you know, at Monza the year before, I believe the first one was scored. But just the sheer joy of racing in the city was so good. And, you know, Singapore is actually the model on which a lot of other street circuits have based themselves on, like Vietnam was trying to do. And I, I think the future of motor racing might very well be this, that you take a city, you activate it, get the government involved. So you don't have to travel, you know, you know, a couple of hours by uh, by road to to the mountain to watch a Grand Prix race uh, and so on. So it's it's a good mix of, you know, the traditional circuits like Spa and then the benefits of the urban racing scene that Singapore would would offer. I, I 100% agree with you, and I, I hope other. Uh, we've we've had it, of course, repeated at uh, at Baku. Um, it's not going to quite be the same, I would think, in Las Vegas because um, Las Vegas has parking lots big enough to run great 
Grand Prix in, but it'll still have a, a street atmosphere, I think. Uh, and that would be great to see. There have been discussions in the past um, about Vietnam and uh, even Thailand, uh, both of which would be street circuits. And let's see what comes on. You know, it, it, there's we're going to have a 24 race calendar for 2023, but there's no reason why we can't have some new circuits coming in as part of that, that, that including Las Vegas. Um, the interesting thing I would also say, though, from your memories of uh, Force India, this is a circuit because of its unusual nature where a midfield team can sometimes spring a bit of surprise. Um, back in 2009, when Lewis Hamilton scored his first victory uh, at the uh, Marina Bay circuit, uh, anybody remember who came second? Timo Glock in a Toyota. I think that was probably the best result Toyota ever got. Uh, or maybe, no, they did grab a couple of wins. But even so, that was still a pretty impressive one. And the last two Grand Prix, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this, maybe you need it as a quiz question, but can you remember... Who set the fastest lap in the last two Grand Prix? Hang on. Uh, that must be 2019 and 2018, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, for 19, I get a feeling it might be Charles Leclerc because he was on fire on that particular race. He didn't win. He got pole position. Of, yeah, he, he did get pole, pole position. position but, but, no, fastest race lap went to Kevin Magnussen in the Haas. Both races. What? You're kidding me. Back when Haas <laughs> was actually fast. <laughs> <laughs> So there is always that opportunity for somebody to come through the field and get certainly get, if not on the podium, at very least get the fastest lap. Yeah, re- remarkable how crazy things have been in Singapore in terms of midfield teams. And I just can't wait to see what happens this time outright. And that's exactly what we are going to discover on our live race watch along when the race comes on. So don't forget to join us, folks. Uh, it's, it's going to be starting 20 minutes before the Grand Prix. So check out the link in the description below to find out how you can register and in the last couple of races, we, we've had a lot of fun. It's been myself, it's been F1 Stats, Krasundaram, and of course, Steve himself. And if you just had to look forward to one thing in the race, Steve, what, what would it be for this time out? Apart from just the circuit returning, which I suppose is a big relief for, for all of us. Because in a way, Singapore is one of the only modern classics, if you can call it that way. I, I think it is very much a modern classic, and uh, you know, for the first ten or twelve years of its history, it's, it's certainly been a big part of my life. Um, but not only that, it, it's just it's a great place to go. I mean, Singapore itself is 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 a fantastic uh, location to go to. Uh, it's it's what I would call Far East one hundred and one. You can experience pretty well everything that you're going to get elsewhere in the Far East uh, or in China in Singapore in, in bite-sized chunks. And, and it's not just the, the Chinese or the um, Southeast Asian um, uh, cultures that you can experience there. Uh, there's a fantastic, very strong Indian culture, and the, the Little India area is, uh, is very famous uh, for, its, uh, for its, its food, its lifestyle, and, and everything else. Uh, I, and it's also, and, and remember this, it, it's also a very good place where people of Muslim faith can feel safe coming to. Don't feel threatened like you would do going to certain European or North American countries. Uh, and that's really important because this is where all these different faiths, denominations, cultures all come together and live together 365 days of the year in Singapore. It's not just about the Grand Prix weekend. Actually, slightly off topic, but the way Singapore is modelled there, housing model if you could put it that way to arrange yeah. everyone of different faiths all together that, that's also an amazing study to actually work on it, it helps to have a small population but that's something that they've done so well 
along with constructing a great Grand Prix circuit, a circuit that's actually created so many great stories. And wow, that, that, that's going to be awesome this time. Right? Finally, the Singapore GP returns and we can't wait to share the race as it unfolds with you on a live base watch along. But folks, thank you for listening to this episode of the Inside Line F1 podcast. And I, I just can't wait for the race to begin at this stage because this episode has got me so excited and I hope that's the same case with you. So thank you, Steve, for joining us as a part of this one and sharing all of your lovely stories, especially the Ferrari one at the hotel. That, that one, I still can't fathom. But thank you for listening, folks. Thank you for watching and we shall see you for the race preview episode that comes up a couple of days before the Grand Prix. Bye-bye.